it 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 was it was very challenging and it's very uh, I guess uh, defining in in what I became. It's because you know you you might like a girl, but it would wouldn't even be in her thoughts that she could be with a brown person. It wouldn't have even in all her uh, media that she's consumed or everything. There's never any brown people in there. It's like, oh, you, you're nice, but that doesn't happen. I'm Matt Levinson, and today my guest is one of those extraordinary people who just seem to be able to simultaneously work at the highest level in technology. So he's a top software engineer who worked at Bell Labs, at IBM's Watson Lab, the Garvin, and now leads R&D for a $100 million livestock management startup called AgriWeb. And at the same time, operating at the same level in the culture, you know, Kenny started Sydney's Elephant Tracks record label and its flagship act the herd you know both really well known for um, a spirit of adventure musically but but just as much for a real deep sense of integrity kenny's always struck me as someone who's calm and you know somewhat calming of the people around him with the humility of someone who is sure of who they are but while i've known kenny a long time it's often been at that sort of uh, level of a key of a, of a chat at a show um, I've never really had that chance to dig below the surface and, you know, get to to know his real story. That's what this podcast is about. It's about talking to great people, you know, people that you really admire. You admire who they are, the work they do, um, but you've never got the chance to find out more and that's what this is about. Kenny, thank you so much for saying yes to doing this. Thank you, Matt. Looking forward to it. You know, you were playing violin at three and a half years old. By the end of the year, you were coding your first computer you're obviously a high achiever and that seems to have been the case pretty much straight out of the womb can you tell me about the kind of family you landed in that set the scene for that that kind of incipient high achiever what what was your family like what were your grandparents your extended family like sure right taking it back it was a unique situation we were in in uh, growing growing up in Wollongong so my parents they came from Sri Lanka uh, back in 1972. So this is just at the end of the white Australia policy. So we were coming into a place, we were out in like, you know, Oak Flats, Albion Park, where you wouldn't see many brown people at all. And so my parents, they had an interesting story as well, just uh, on how they got here. They were from different religions, which was super rare back then in Sri Lanka. So... They met because they were they they're both uh, school teachers in Ethiopia. So wow, this, wow, this how, how did that come to be? <laughs> so it can go into each of them, go through their history, but it, they're both fascinating stories. So my my dad's family was from the Muslim side, and in Sri Lanka, there's two sides. There's the Muslims that came from the Moors, and the Muslims came from Malaysia. And this is a tiny percent. There was like three uh, percent of Muslims in Sri Lanka at the time. And, you know, the family was once well off, but due to history events, they were like super poor at the time. Uh, so my dad, he was like working three jobs by the time he was like 13 years. Uh, he was the only kid in his suburb that actually uh, went to high school, not even finished high school, but went to high school. He ended up finishing, of course, but he would have to walk like uh, many kilometers to like d- distant suburbs just to go to school. He'd come home. And then he'd be teaching all the neighborhood kids. And this from like, is from like year seven, year eight. And because all those kids from there, education so different, right? It's education is survival. And it's how you get yourself, you know, out of your situation. So, so from, from a young age, he had to look, he was like, you know, the eldest guy, a boy. So he had to look after the many, many siblings bring money into the house. And uh, it's, that was the work ethic that he, he grew up with. Just, uh, you know, three jobs, always trying to figure out... Uh, how to get ahead. At the time, it was the African Spring. So in Africa, uh, they'd just thrown off their uh, colonial past. They were looking for a whole lot of um, Asian teachers, South Asian teachers. They're getting a lot of Indian teachers across. 
to teach uh, the the new African nations. Uh, in Ethiopia, they were getting Indian teachers. Then at one time, India said, uh, we got to hold on for our teachers for two years. So then they went to Sri Lanka. My mum's side was very different. She was from the Sinhalese, that's the Buddhist majority. She came from a fairly well-off family that lived in Kandy. Uh, Kandy, beautiful uh, cap, uh, old capital in the centre. She was very close with the family, very close with the mother. The mother was horrified that uh, she wanted to get this scholarship to go to uh, Ethiopia. But uh, she was very determined as well. And she said, no, no, I'm going, I'm going. This was like unheard of a, a, young, a young girl, like, you know, just finished uni, uh, leaving. They both went and there was just a handful of Sri Lankans in Ethiopia. So this is uh, before Eritrea, uh, before the Civil War. And they have very fond memories um, of Ethiopia at the time. This is the beautiful old um, city that was uh, colonized by the Italians. So a lot of beautiful uh, white arches and marble and uh, and seeing photos of it back then, it looks like a paradise. It's uh, incredible. I, I yeah. was in Ethiopia a couple of years ago with work um, and I, I landed in Addis and then went up to the up to near the border with Eritrea. So right. I was up around the refugee camps up there. And, you know, I was struck by, I mean, it is a very diverse country, you know, the kind of landscapes. Actually, it felt somewhat similar to Australia when I was travelling out through the north of the country. Right. But there's, you know, there's the roots of the Afrofuturism that was there, but also something uh, incredibly proud about that country as well. You know, this is... people. People who lived in Ethiopia were so ready to, to say to me, you know, we were never colonised. You know, Eritrea yeah. was, but there was there's such a great sense of pride and culture in that country. Yeah, and the history as well, the lineage going back to King Solomon. We had a photo of uh, Haile Selassie in the, <laughs> in the dining room as well. Um, yeah, so my dad was teaching at the teacher's college there. My mum was teaching at the high schools. Uh, there was a handful of Sri Lankans that they were hanging around with and, uh, and those two uh, fell in love. And then, so they worked there. My dad was sending most of the money back to the family in Sri Lanka. He was earning like three times as much than his three jobs in Sri Lanka. Uh, so when they came back, they thought, oh, it's going to be great. We can get married and, um, and set up our family back in Sri Lanka. We made a bunch of money after many years in Ethiopia. They got back and the families were horrified about a mixed marriage. Uh, so they ended up having a secret marriage and then getting a visa to go to Australia. And then they said, okay, we're up. Was that a sort of a pick Australia out of a hat kind of decision? Yeah. Or was there a, was there a connection? There was, it was com- completely zero ties at all. This is like, oh, we're going to be together. We're not going to be here. So where are we going to go? So it was Canada or Australia. Um, And Australia had just finished the White Australia policy. So they had this like skilled migration. Uh, They needed teachers. uh, So the stars aligned. And uh, yeah, they were across a shipment of um, Sri Lankan teachers that came across. And they didn't even tell their parents they were going. They They just said, okay, we're just going out. And then they got on different planes and then they met at Singapore and then they came to Australia. We're going to go into a lot more of this story uh, and your story, I should say. But did they ever? Did they ever mend those bridges? Yeah. So the, even though my mum was super close with her her parents, they didn't get to talk for like five years. And when when I was like about one and a half, they went back to Sri Lanka, and then they went to my parents' house. My parents were out at the time, and they said what. It broke the ice was they put the two uh, grandchild, grandkids on the bed and when the parents came home they saw the grandkids and all was forgiven yeah yeah <laughs> i hear that so you uh you were born in in sydney or like down south uh, um, yeah. wollongong all of that incredible story gives me a real sense of the kind of culture and you know um the hard workingness which i i think we're gonna see lots of evidence of that in this conversation but also the um the hunger for learning and the um, the valuing of education. So, you know, um, straight out, you were coming into that kind of culture. That's right. And growing up in Melbourne, there were very, very few Sri Lankan people that, um, that would be around. So my, my parents were kind of like curious about keeping a connection with the culture, especially my mum. My dad was kind of like, uh, he had a very different experience of Sri Lanka than my mum. So he was kind of like glad to be away from it in a way. Um, but there were a few Sri Lankans in Wollongong and that would be more the doctors and the lawyers. Uh, so we'd meet up with them every now and again. My parents are the school teachers. 
so, so that was interesting, uh, seeing a, a few Sri Lankans, but there's very little. But we were very isolated in Sri Lanka. Uh, I remember the first time my, my parents, they invited a fellow teacher um, home for um, dinner. And it was such a big ordeal. And they said, oh, and then we'll come at, uh, come on Saturday night. And the parents said, okay, okay. But, uh, sorry, the, the teacher said they'll come. And they didn't know what to expect going to a Sri Lankan house. So they came and my mum had spent like about two days making this incredible feast. And the teacher, they didn't know that um, that they should have eaten or not. So they actually had dinner already. <laughs> Oh, wow. Oh, my goodness. No, what? There must be so many of these just tragic faux pas that, that happened, you know, as cultures were connecting around that time. Yes, for sure. So, yeah, they politely tried to eat as much as they could and they were amazed by the food because if you could imagine just the wealth of spices and Sri Lanka is like, you know, famous for its food and cuisines. Incredible sambals and... Yeah. yeah, yeah. And then so the the people were all freaking out at all the tastes and that's something I experienced all my life, bringing home old friends and they would always love my mum's cooking and I was, that was something I had every day and I just couldn't stand it. But um, but I was amazed by all my friends just kept, kept on wanting it. How was, how was music part of your childhood? Because you you started playing instruments really early and it seems like there's, you know, if there's an instrument that you don't know how to play, I'm pretty sure it's probably not worth playing. How were you listening to a lot? Was music a really big part of your home life? Yeah, it was interesting. Like trying to think about where it all comes from. Um, My my dad, like he never had the opportunity for music in his life. Uh, But coming to Australia, he would buy those, uh, I don't know, it wasn't Demtel back then, but whatever was selling those like you know, mail order uh, things. So that we're getting these uh, classical uh, vinyl of all the different producers and they just kept on coming and coming and here's a whole box set of Mozart and Beethoven and Grieg and Tchaikovsky. And, and my dad would just buy these massive bookshelves to just house all these like vinyl records. So, so there was that going on. My dad would have been from the, the Beatles side. My mum was from like the Elvis side. Uh, so there was old music. There's Jim Reeves getting played. Uh, looking at my mum's background, the, the music was all throughout her family. And she was uh, singing a lot when she was young. She played the violin when she was young. I remember many years later going back and visiting um, her side of the family. And then in the afternoons, everyone just goes out into the, the front yard and they grab some instruments. And then there's like, you know, 14 of the family just sitting around singing songs. And I was going, wow, this is cool, which we did this every afternoon. And so music was just you know, deeply part of her life. So, and, and that would have been her influence on getting me to try the violin. And my brother was playing violin as well. I used to cry going to lessons. I was like three and a half and um, had this quarter size violin looks like a little toy uh and my teacher was like super super strict he was like the scariest guy ever and i found out many years later that at, at all the functions that we'd have to go to lots of the other parents were very racist to my mum. wow <laughs> yeah that you don't find and out. you were completely yeah. oblivious to it at the time i mean as you would be at three yeah, or four yeah, years yeah, old yeah, yeah yeah my brother stayed in those orchestras for uh, for many years later but um yeah i, I just i didn't last long on that when I was about six, I got into piano uh, and I stayed on piano for many years and that became a great foundation for all the music that came afterwards. So with piano, when I'd be thinking about music for many years, I'd be visualising what it looks like on the piano because it's a very visual instrument, like you see all the notes directly in front of you. Yeah, I think we often forget that it's like basically percussion, Yeah, you know, the piano and it, and it does lay out all of the pieces yeah. like that. You know, the other... Um, thing that you were doing at that time is you picked up your first computer and started programming that feels like I mean it all makes sense with what you do now but it also seems totally bonkers you know how did you wind up with a computer (laughs) and start programming in Wollongong at four years old (laughs) that was all my dad my dad he didn't know a thing about computers um, but he knew that they were going to be big so he bought he always wanted the best for us, even we weren't like rich or anything, but there were lots of circumstances where they'd like, you know, go out to get stuff for their kids, even that we couldn't really afford. Uh, so he ended up buying a Dick Smith uh, System 80 computer, clone of the TRS-80. I would have been four and a bit. My brother would have been um, six and a half. And um, so he gave that 
box to us and he says here you go this is your toy uh you you guys get it working uh so Ryan my brother he's a you know very cluey since a young age so he was like you know going through the manuals and putting it all together and my dad's just watching um so I was just like you know sitting there just looking at all the packaging and um enjoying myself and yeah, so Ryan gets it all working and then so he starts learning how to program. And then so I'm just sitting there watching and absorbing. And back then you only had two games. There was, uh, there was like Space Invaders and like this ASCII art, like car racing one. There's basically characters describing the road as the car's going super lo-fi. After that, for us to get any new games, what we had to do is we had to go to the bookstore. And then you buy a, a book on different programs and then to get that program in, you had to type it in yourself. Right. That's very motivating, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. So I was uh, coding these things, like just copying initially, basically doing it before I knew how to write and read. So I knew how to write my name, but I was looking at the keyboard and being able to code this stuff. And then after that, then we started getting creative and just started making our name appear on the screen and just basic stuff, then writing very basic games and then... We kept on doing more and more uh, programs ourselves. And then our, our parents were going, oh, these kids are liking this thing. Let's see what's available for them. What, uh, what holiday classes are there at the Wollongong TAFE and universities? Uh, so they enrolled us in these like uh, beginner, then intermediate uh, courses on that run in the holidays. And then we'd go there, then there'd be all adults and us. Uh, I mean, How old if, were you at this time? Uh, I would have the first one I would have done was in second grade. Right, the wow. second. Oh my god, it must have been so uh, like challenging for you guys, but also like kind of mind blowing for those adults who were sitting in the class as well. Yeah, and bizarrely, like we went to the advanced one, and uh, they said, "Oh." Uh, I said, are you, they are asking, are you guys sure you're meant to be here? And he said, oh, yeah, we've been programming our program. They're like, oh, can you show us? And then so, yeah, we, we brought them. And then so we loaded it up and showed it to them. And they went, oh, we're not going to be teaching you that in this course. That's high res. We're only teaching you low res in this course. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so, so after that, that was actually one of the inspirations why my parents wanted to leave Wollongong. They thought that, you know, okay, well, after we'd finished every course available that was to us in Wollongong. And they said we needed a bigger pool. So funnily enough, we didn't go to any more in Sydney, but we ended up moving to, up to Sydney uh, at the end of third grade. And you yeah. were, by that time, you were up in the northwest of Sydney, right? Um, what was it like there? What, you know, the, your parents had experienced a bit of racism down in the south. Yeah. And northwest Sydney is, um, you know, particularly, I guess, at that time was, you know, um, still pretty white, pretty, you know, pretty suburban. Yeah. What, was the, what was the experience of landing up there? Yeah, and that, that, that was another reason why we moved as well. Like, we actually went to a little grammar school in, in Illawarra. Like, and um, my, my brother was getting called, like, Gollywog and, um, and it, you know, racist names and people were, like, hustling him. Uh, so that was one of the reasons my parents uh, wanted to, to get out of that school uh, where me and my brother were at. My parents, especially my dad, because they're both from education, they're both teachers. He's very experimental. Yeah. Uh, so we went from a grammar school to a Steiner school. And Steiner is like alternative education. It's a lot of focus on the arts and drama and creative learning. So at the time, it was uh, Northwest. So we were on the Cherrybrook area. We were on half an acre. Uh, all the other houses around us were like the new developments were in like this old fibro house with like a massive barn. Uh, but it was a, a beautiful, a beautiful spot to grow up. The school that we went to up there, because it, uh, Steiner comes from like or, uh, European origins, uh, at the time, me and my brother were the only people of colour in the entire school. And the school went from kindergarten to year 12, about 200 kids. Was it a welcoming environment though for you? It was, it had a welcoming f feel about it aspects of it definitely because it's more like curiosity because people knew these other people existed but had never had real contact with them uh and over the years like uh there'd be more people of color but initially the next closest person would have been like a 
Italian girl and she was like slightly brown. Well, it must have just been. I mean, at that age, I guess, you know, I think about myself, I think about other kids. Everyone just wants to belong at that age, right? They want to like, they want to feel like they're, um, they want to like wear the same clothes as other people and play the sport and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. How, how was that experience for you? It, it, it was, it was very challenging and it's very, uh, I guess, uh, defining in, in what I became. It's because, you know, you you might like a girl, but it would, wouldn't even be in her thoughts that she could be with a brown person. It wouldn't have even, in all her uh, media that she's consumed or everything, there's never any brown people in there. It's like, oh, you, you're nice, but that doesn't happen. So that was very, uh, it was the years of integration as well. People needed to assimilate when they came to Australia. And that's what my parents took on very strongly. They were very thankful to Australia for taking him in. So my dad was fiercely into the assimilation and he didn't want anything to do with the, the previous culture. So they never taught us uh, the languages. Actually, my mum wanted to, but my dad was against it. Uh, so it's a shame that I, that I didn't uh, learn the language, like looking back. And, you know, I've, I've learned like little bits here and there myself. But, yeah, that was just a product of the times yeah, as yeah. well. I, th- I think that in some ways that's kind of heartbreaking, but also, you know, from the story about your dad, I can understand why he was very happy to land here and just assimilate and, you know, join the new country. But yeah, it's it's tough feeling that kind of that gap, I guess. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And and from my perspective, I can see myself just uh, as you are, uh, as more and more Asian people came to Australia over the years it's almost like I had to prove that I had links in that assimilation. I'd, uh, sometimes I'd be meeting more uh, new people and I'd be talking in an extra Australian slang. And I was, then I looked back and went, oh, what am, what am I doing that for? <laughs> it's like proving to myself that, hey, I, I've been here for a while. It must be so. And um, we're going to talk about your group, The Herd, in a little while. And, you know, it got so kind of caught up in that all that kind of sounding Australian and the, that kind of whole thing that happened in Oz hip hop. And, you know, this is the group who had the song Scallops, you know, her first, first big breakthrough song that sort of felt so Australian at times. Um, but before we get to that, you know, you were, you went off to high school, um, you ended up being at Cherry Brook Tech High School and it seems like you were one of the star pupils, you were the school captain, um, you, you've been back to give kind of valedictory or kind of keynotes to students. Then you went off to UTS to study engineering. And, you know, I think about all those times, that high school experience, going off to uni. For a lot of people, that stuff is about finding themselves and finding their place in the world. And, you know, when I was thinking about this in preparation for this interview, I felt like you're so self-assured, you're so sure of yourself and you carry yourself with this real calm that that comes from a sort of self-internal confidence. But hearing you talk about your childhood and hearing you talk about, you know, being set off to music lessons at three and a half and some of those things that you dealt with, it must have been a real transition time going through high school, going off to uni. Can you reflect on that that time for me? Yeah, sure. I was a super sensitive kid growing up. Like I was, and no one could ever raise a voice to me. I'd just be in tears. Uh, I'd just be hiding in the closet kind of kid uh so that was like you know interesting like as a little kid growing up right and then from there it's kind of like I got rid of a lot of those lessons early in a way and then, then that helped me like you know find confidence later on we went from this you know beautiful calming uh school environment very protective from the Steiner then I went to Carlingford um a public school year nine and the the, the biggest difference I found was like oh why is everyone just hating school all the time? It's like, why does everyone just keep talking about how much they hate school? It's just school. You just go and do it. And it didn't, didn't, uh, it didn't absorb into me. It's like that negative attitude of like, oh, we hate this, we hate this, oh, that teacher sucks. It's like, what do you mean? You, you, you're here all day. You, you just got to get this school done, right? And it, so that was one thing that I noticed about, you know, that big transition um, into Carlingford. Then... Two and years I, and later. I guess I guess through that you'd you'd grown up with this culture with your parents where education was something that was really to be prized and really to be valued in a really deep way, right? Definitely. And my 
my parents, uh, they're acknowledging like there's, there's being a high school teacher in Australia was hard work in 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 dealing with the 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 system this and the situation. But a lot of uh, Sri Lankan parents at the time they would like really push their kids to be doctors or lawyers. And my parents, they were quite different. They were saying, we want you to be whatever you want to be, to be whatever excites you, right? But don't become a teacher in Australia. This was because they were coming from uh, teaching in Ethiopia, teaching in Sri Lanka, where the kids had you know, so much respect for learning that teaching, you know, it wore them down so much. But saying that, my dad is still a teacher, even what is it now, 81 years old, he still goes in and he's, he's still some, um, often does five days a week. Well, I, I, love, <laughs> I love that sense of service and, and contribution, which is really what teaching is about. Yeah, yeah. When did you start making music of your own? Not just playing music, yeah. but making your own music. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, that would be in sixth grade. I, I used to just, just twiddle about on the piano, just making up stuff because um, I used to play piano a lot, like, you know, grade three, grade four, just twiddling around. Sixth grade, I kind of like worked out how to record it on a uh, tape player, tape players. And this is just me just experimenting with what we had in the house. I didn't, I'd never heard of a four track. Basically, I had my keyboard and I had on, on that keyboard, I could like do drums and so on. So I'd get two tape players and record to one, then play it back and record to the other while recording a new track in, going left and right and so on. And I remember in sixth grade, I took it into school and showed my teacher. And my teacher, in, in Steiner, it's a bit uh, different, strange, where you'd have the same teacher from first grade all the way to end of seventh grade. Wow, and then okay. it, you'd have a new teacher that would be a guardian from eighth grade to year 12 or sometimes year 13. So my teacher was an amazing influence on me and it's really hit and miss in Steiner because you have to have a real connection with your teacher because you're stuck with them for a long time. But I, I scored lucky. Um, and so my, my teacher, he taught me uh, guitar. He taught me uh, surfing. The whole class would go surfing. He'd teach me jazz piano, um, changing my classical into jazz uh, and how to improvise and blues and so on. So... He was an amazing musician and he, he owned like, you know, 12 left-handed guitars. So I, I showed him my tape and he goes, oh, okay, okay, that's really interesting. And then so he, he went and brought the, the other music teachers in, uh, in the school and they all played it during a lunchtime while uh, in a secret meeting and I wasn't allowed in. And then I, could, I was peering in the window. What from, do I from do outside. with this? What do I do <laughs> yeah. with this kid? <laughs> and... And then it was very strange because I was expecting something amazing to happen. And and afterwards, it was that was it. And I was going, oh, did you like it? Yeah, yeah, it was good. And I was going, okay, so what was that meeting about? And and I tried to think back of what would have happened in that meeting. And I, I'm guessing it would have been the Steiner way of like not to push the kids, just let them create, themsel create it themselves. So, yeah, they didn't say anything else. They didn't do anything more with it. They went, okay, that's cool. And, and I just kept on, you know, twiddling around with music myself. So interesting. Um, you wound up, you know, after leaving school, you wound up in a band for a while, in a sort of an indie rock band or a lo-fi rock band, I think I've heard you describe it as. And, you know, I love the kind of, um, those funny little accidents that happen along the way that end up being really big turning points. And, you know, for you, when I've when I've read about the birth of Elephant Tracks and all the stuff that came later, it was this mate of yours who was leaving to go to Japan, right? Who, who was that catalyst that kind of kicked the piece off? Can you tell me a bit about that? Sure. So, this was a, a guy, Brad, that I used to. Uh, he was my best friend at Carlingford, and but we kept in contact when I went to Cherrybrook afterwards. Uh, he was an amazing artist. He ended up working at Disney for a while. Uh, and he was going to go to Japan to try his uh, go at art in Japan, and he, his partner was from Japan, and he was going to go for good. And so at the time, it was like it was a, a tricky time uh, that we recently had three friends die, um, pass away, uh, that we all uh, had in common. Um, so it was a time when we were all thinking that this, we were 22 years old. This is our peak potential. It's like we're all uh, 
we all could do so much yet none of us had done anything in a sense so and and to be able to lose friends at that that age it's like it makes you just really want to grasp the day and just get stuff done so this friend Brad he was going to go overseas and with I was making music at the time there was no ways how we we knew how to get this music out there we there was like you know international uh, independent labels that we loved that seemed so far away there wasn't really music happening in Australia at that level and we had all these tracks that we'd written and we enjoyed it and I thought why don't we all just start making tracks as a goodbye CD for Brad people liked the ideas and we're running out of time so we said let's do it and then we made a two-day block and then each of our friends we, we gave like a two-hour window just saying uh, for this two hours uh, let's get a song and then it was all scheduled recording in my bedroom and some people came with lyrics, some people wrote them on the fly. We'd just make up a track straight away. Like in two hours, we'd be writing the entire track uh, and recording it and, um, and doing vocals and everything. By the end, you know, we had a whole CD of, you know, people making uh, different messages for Brad and it was super diverse. There was like, you know, uh, little funny punk songs and there was um, hip hop songs and, you know, other weird electronic ones or ambient ones. And uh, we had a listening party. We were invited every round, we, everyone around. We, we burnt them up in CDRs. And, uh, yeah, it was a really special moment. And how's, it, how's it stand up now? How's that CD stand up? <laughs> we'll have to find it. It will be pretty funny listening to it, I reckon. Um, it, yeah, it, it, they were, like, very hapdash slapped together, but everyone really appreciated um, the effort that went in. So, yeah, I'd love to give it all a listen again. A year later, you did kind of do it all again with uh, with a, the first kind of Elephant Tracks release, right? It was called Curse of Writing. Yeah, that was actually just months after. So this would have been in like 1998, Brad CD would have been around May. And then from that point, it's like, damn, that actually worked. We can just make these CDRs. We can go to Dick Smith and buy those stickers that you stick on the CDRs and you can print on them from your home printer and uh, we can go and uh, buy these like jewel cases and put all the CDs in. We could get photocopies made to make the covers. We can do it all. And I had a great um, connection with our local record store, Freestyle Records in um, Surrey Hills. And, uh, and they were saying, uh, yeah, you guys making music, you just bring it in and on consignment. Go to that re- uh, news agency there, buy a re- receipt book. Uh, we'll stock your CDs. And so that really uh, helped me uh, get started on that. It must have been weird to be looking at Ninja Tune and all these other, you know, like labels that I guess we were all looking to overseas at that time. And then suddenly this just all comes together so easily in a way. I mean, I'm sure there were challenges along the way, but it feels like it all kind of fell into place pretty quickly. It was perfect timing because it was at the edge of technology in the sense that CDRs were recently out. Uh, and the computers were now powerful enough that they could process the audio on on them at home. Previously, people just used the home computers for what they call MIDI, uh, which is you need extra external hardware to trigger. Um, I came from the band background, so recording in studios would cost thousands of dollars, and we had experience with that, and it's always frustrating because uh, it happens so quickly, and I'm, I'm a perfectionist. So you spend all these thousands of dollars, and it's over in like half a day or a day. So being able to do it all at home um, is, is, is amazing. And because we were early to this, we actually got a, a good deal of media attention. Uh, the Australian came to interview me. We, we got on the Alchemy SBS TV show about these like new bedroom labels that are coming out. And so from there, we, could, uh, we were manufacturing all the CDs at home for the first release. I would, you know, take them in a bag. I'd do the walk around the Surrey Hills record stores. We'd go to Newtown. We'd um, uh, go on holidays to different cities, Brisbane, Melbourne, drop off CDs as we go. We started getting, uh, mailing them out to shops. Uh, over, Over a few years, we ended up with this distribution network that other labels wanted as well. All these other bedroom labels popped up. So we ended up distributing like five different labels uh, all, all through, uh, you know, just uh, sending them out. By then we were uh, pressing CDs, not burning them anymore because we're doing like, you know, 500 at a time. I mean, around this time you were also 
um, wrapping up your engineering degree. And in doing that, you'd come up with this new piece of software um, called DACE. What, what does it stand for? Distributed Audio Sequencer. And that was about jamming online with people, which I guess, you know, now that probably feels a little bit old hat, but at the time it felt incredibly radical. Where'd the idea come from? Yeah, so just it's just coming from my passions about, um, you know, all my life I did computers and music. So for my thesis, I was trying to figure out how to merge those two together. So I, I had some great industrial experiences with some um, companies and I like the Bell Labs and the other companies where I knew uh, I started to learn about how all the network protocols work. And then so given that, I thought, why don't we make a software where you could, um, you know, jam together? So that was my focus for the thesis for the year. And I wanted it not to just be as a composition tool, but as a performance tool. So you could have like, you know, four people going on stage, one of the computers outputting the beats, but four of the people actually changing what's happening on um, to the music live. You could be plotting kicks or snares or adding bass notes or transposing. or And, um, and it, to make it work without lag... I use the fact that, you know, electronic music or modern music is inherently loop-based. So it should always keep looping on like a four-bar, eight-bar riff and everyone keeps modifying that riff. So as the changes come across to that computer, the music will keep on morphing. So you'd play a song and we'll, and you can jam it out for like a, an hour where the music just keeps on slowly changing. I love that that moment and that sense of possibility that, you know, like in ref- in reflection, in hindsight, just seems um, just so huge at the time. You know, you were talking about being 22 and not having done anything but all this potential. You know, just a few years later, you it, it felt like, well, you'd just started pressing up CDRs, the internet was exploding and you were really deeply involved in both. Like in this kind of really almost punk way with the pressing up CDRs and, and building a label and making music, but also in a deep, deeply technical way, coding, building software. You'd just created this new festival in Newcastle called Sound Summit, which was just, you know, like it was a magical time being in Newcastle at that time. It just yeah. felt like all the creative talent from around the country would descend on Newcastle at that time. You just launched Ace with this kind of, you know, simultaneously launching it for the Computer Society, but also playing with Cold Cut on Alchemy, which is just <laughs> must have been mind blowing. You know, like connecting up with kind of heroes from around the world. What what was that moment like? What was it like <laughs> being in that moment? Did it feel like it never gets better than this? It was an amazing time. Like it was a, a a workshop. Like our house was a workshop. There was, there was it was nonstop. Like. We were in share houses, but we actually had to have a rule that there's no TV in the living space because it it was probably horrible to live with me because there'll just be like boxes of like CDs and stuff everywhere, and uh, so we ended up people that ended up living with us ended ended up people helping run the label <laughs> because it it was the um, the nonstop um, office basically with people coming through all the time. Um, I remember the. All the, the failed CDRs, uh, we'd end up like posting around up our lounge room. So they were like part of the wallpaper because we had so many bad burns over the years. But it, it's kind of like the thing that just kept on growing and growing and growing. And one of the things my mum taught me was never say no to an opportunity. So what that means is that you, you keep on saying yes and it keeps on propelling you forward. But life gets really busy as well. And it's like, it was great lessons in multitasking as well of how to keep so many different things on the boil. Uh, the Sound Summit uh, conferences were, you know, we got a grant from Australia Council for the Arts to bring every uh, electronic and hip hop uh, record label in the country together. So we can all talk about all the problems we're all facing together. Like how do you do marketing, how do you get international distribution for Australian acts, uh, how do you do uh, production. Um, and with that, we were getting um, all these different uh, international labels coming down to visit as well. Um, and the number of acts that would that would come, there were like, I remember the second one, we had like, I think over 500 performers. Uh, there were like 34 gigs that went over that week. And it was absolutely bonkers. Um, but after that f- that first one we did, that was actually the birth of the herd as well. 
I was completely exhausted after the sound summit of like, you know, getting little sleep for weeks and weeks that I thought, oh, I was living with Shannon, um, Aussie Battler at the time. Man, I just need to chill. He goes, oh, I got a, my family got a holiday house up at Summerland, up at the Central Coast. Uh, why don't we just uh, go up there and um, we can take some music gear. And so that became the foundation of The Herd, that we invited a whole bunch of artists to come up and record with us. So we all had like random jobs and we still had to pay the rent. So none of us were there like um, seven days a week, but we'll like pop up for like four days or three days out of the week and there'll be different permutations of artists all descending on here for six weeks. And we had all different songs that were coming out of this. So the previous CDs were all uh, compilation CDs and this was us all unifying where we didn't actually even put our names on the tracks. We just said we're all the herd and we ended up just putting logos. We each had a logo and that was saying who was involved in each uh, track. So it was a very anonymous style. But, um, and then that's where, you know, one lunchtime we were going down. Most of the band were like pescatarian or veg at the time. We went down to the local fish and chips store and we had to convince them um, to make us a scallop burger. Uh, they said, what, you want to put the potato scallop in the bun? And yeah, yeah, just, just, just make it for us, please. We'll pay you. So that, that became, while we were back in the balcony eating our scallop burger, then that's when they were starting to write the scallop song. And it's so, uh, so amazing. You know, <laughs> that song, it's probably become a bit of a, you know, thing hanging around the neck of some of the MCs in the herd. But, you know, like it was such a, such a moment. And, you know, like it was... It, on a such an incredibly musically adventurous album, you know, it was touching on, you know, like those previous CDs, bits of ambient electronic music, drum and bass and, and junglist rhythms, hip hop, all these sort of things. It was a group that was really pushing at so many edges. That was one song that gave radio <laughs> something that was easy to play and probably a really critical factor in that kind of growth into the next level. I mean, since then, you know, there's been a string of enormous records, um, decades of touring. Um, around that time, there was this constant kind of like dumb public debate about, you know, why aren't the kids of today producing protest songs, you know, like we were back in the 60s. And you were just your band was putting out a stream of them, 77%, burned down the parliament. You know, I was listening back to The King Is Dead this morning and it just reminded me of just that incredible moment when Howard was voted out, which felt just so seismic, really. It's a, and it's all captured in that song. You know, since then, you, you stepped away from the label, passed it on to my brother, Tim, um, who, who has kept running the label. That label has carried on through dramatic shifts in uh, in the culture in the way the music industry works and I know you've got a podcast coming from the label <laughs> you know I can see all the clippings just on on the floor here behind us as we talk and so a lot of that stuff is going to be brought out in that podcast and I can't wait to hear it but you know the the music industry has dramatically changed over that time you've had Napster to Spotify and you've had you know the rise and rise of hip-hop in this city and you know this kind of giving voice to people like Nadine and Be Wise and Elle Fresh the Lion which feels like a dramatic part of the way we think about who we are even as Sydney siders and as Australians how do you reflect on on the role and the legacy of Elephant Tracks in that time? Yeah it's, it's been an amazing journey and you know looking back there's very little that's still around in the independent scene from when we started it's like it was been such a tumultuous period in, in music uh, history, uh, seeing so many things uh, rise and fall as all the technologies change and, uh, and a lot of groups couldn't keep up. So th there's that aspect as well. It's like, you know, this has been a survival story and it always is. It's like we have to keep reevaluating, trying to figure out how we're going to survive for the next few years. Um, when we started, like I came from the indie rock uh, scene where it's predominantly white uh, you get the odd person of color here and there but it wasn't um, it, it wasn't widespread at all and in the electronic music scene likewise one thing that was interesting was uh, when Asian Dub Foundation came out in uh, the UK and then all of a sudden all these South Australia South uh, Asians were up front and center about their their culture 
and making amazing like you know electronic music uh, drum and bass music and uh, such adventurous stuff as well right like yeah. it was transcending genres and mixing things in really unexpected like ways that weren't the norm at that time at all yeah for sure and that gave me a lot of um uh, a lot of courage in a way of just saying oh wow look you don't have to be ashamed of your culture you can actually be proud of your culture and be in this space you don't have to just assimilate to what you're seeing you can make your own way right through this time you were leading a double life you know you were um working as a software engineer and i guess the reality is that for most music makers and musicians in this country most of them have a day job but i get the impression that you would have been doing this anyway can you tell me about the way those two roles you know working as a software engineer and working as a musician you know the way they complemented each other and also the way they conflicted with each other i'm <laughs> sure there's like a bit of both yeah, sure, sure. It's it was interesting as well, just thinking like you know how come I didn't choose one or the other, because I kept I kept the candle burning at both ends, like, you know, doing this uh, engineering career while doing all this other music as well. When I finished my degree, I ended up working like two to three days a week, um, working just during the dot com boom. I was working with my brother, doing um, you know website development in like 2000 and f- for me it felt hard to stop in a way like it, when i was saying we grew up in that old house back then in the 90s when we had that recession we had to have uh my parents were so broke that we all moved into the shed and this is the shed that my dad spent like his school holidays converting into a barn for me and my brother to live but we were renting out the house and the whole family was living in the shed. And this is just when I moved to Carlingford. So I couldn't have friends over or anything like that. Um, but that was the life I grew up with. Money was super tight. But what was bizarre during that time, even though they was having trouble affording the, the mortgage repayments, was they never even stopped my music lessons. Wow. It was hard for me to say that I'm just going to go all music in that sense, right? Because it... in. In, in some kind of respect, it feels like a luxury in a way. There's in the sense that, you know, uh, sure, I can do what I love, but I also love doing computer work for one. But also my, my brain needed to keep active in that sense, to use a different part of my brain. But also I just had that built into me that I need that security as the well. The financial security. Yeah, yeah. So, but I still really loved music, so I just had to just not sleep. That's incredible. Yeah. I'm sure there were many nights where you were, you know, like working all through the night, making music <laughs> and then going off um, to, you know, be be working again. Looking at your CV, I mean, it's like a stream of different programming languages and um, techniques along with some of those kind of household name level labs that you've worked in, you know, the Watson lab, you know, that must be incredible <laughs> to, you know, and the Garvin, you know, these are um, places where um, they're doing incredible work you know, like world-defining work in a way. How do you reflect on that career? Yeah, it was interesting because I I really liked uh, product development. I love building stuff ever since I was a kid. And it doesn't have to be physical, they're building virtual things. And that's the creativity that I get out of uh, programming. So I've always been into product development, making the most uh, beautiful thing. Like if you imagine you're building a castle or a bridge, right? You get a satisfaction out of making it really well. And that's what product development is. And back then, there was very little product development in, happening in Sydney. Most of the computer work was services. Services means that you're, you're building some uh, tool for one particular client. Product development is you're building a product for thousands of people. So my, I focused my career on the product development. And um, so that got me between like... Um, the, the, the Canon Research, uh, the Bell Labs, uh, then IBM. I was in two companies that were acquired by IBM, <laughs> two different startups that were acquired by IBM. Um, I was at I, the second time I was at IBM for like eight years and we ended up, um, the software that we were working on, the web content management, was getting used by like two billion people worldwide because it was like all the banks and aeroplanes and um, insurance companies. There was a massive scale. Uh, I got into this thing called bio-inspired computing and that was really fascinating for me because I didn't even do biology in high school. Uh, And for me to learn, there was this whole new field that I knew nothing about. I was just fascinated and I started learning heaps about biology. 
the idea was how do you make computer systems better by looking at how biology has done it for thousands, for millions, billions of years. About eight years ago, you'd just finished a PhD, which you'd been doing while you were at the Garvin, and you started at, well, you joined a startup doing software for livestock management. What drew you into that world? <laughs> like, how did, how did you, I mean, how did you find out about the challenge and get caught up in it? Sure, that's a good question. Uh, so I didn't actually finish my PhD at that time, but I'd finished a lot of the work for it. So this young guy I used to mentor at IBM, he'd joined a, a startup as a tech founder and he was going well in it and he knew that it was it had to grow a lot. Um, so he kept on messaging me going, hey, Kenny, do you want to come join this farming startup? And, no, no, man, I'm just finishing my PhD. I've got heaps of work I'm doing. Um, and, he, and then he kept on hassling me and I went, okay, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll have a chat and just come and meet the founders. All right, all right, we'll, we'll meet the founders. So just uh, talking with uh, one of the founders, uh, Justin Webb, we had a had a meeting and he was telling me about the space and telling me about, uh, you know, the competition, which there wasn't any, like livestock, the agriculture in general has been left behind in technology. Within agriculture, livestock has been far left behind in technology. Uh, uh, cropping have had like a, you know, GPS powered tractors for like, you know, 20 years uh, but for livestock, there was very little going on at the time. You know, um, listening to you, you know, when I was when I, I remember when I first found out about this, um, I thought, you know, Kenny is part of the herd, <laughs> and you know, like as you were saying earlier, you know, you all went off to the central coast, and you were vegetarians or pescatarians, <laughs> and like no one wanted to eat. Like, how do you wind up working on a livestock? You know, was there a kind of a mental challenge for you when you when you heard about? I mean, it's an interesting tech problem yeah you could deploy your skills really well to it yeah but was there a challenge for you like it was there was interesting I, I was excited by it because i was understanding that it was an important discussion to have for sustainability how do you actually improve things if you don't actually know what the real numbers are so there was so much opportunity to be able to understand the numbers to be able to redigitize the the farming and livestock systems so we can actually figure out how to improve it by giving the amounts of data that we have now that's given us the opportunity that we can try to understand different techniques that will help improve efficiency help farms be more resilient to changing weather patterns uh, that we can actually make farms more sustainable not just an, an airy fairy we're doing some magical carbon credits like what we want is things that are rock solid you know backed by science, you're working with remote sensing, like, you know, satellite imagery. So, you know, you can't be cheating what you say is growing on this thing. There's, there's so much opportunity there. There's so much that we have to improve. Like we do face this fundamental problem that we have to feed close to 10 billion people by 2050 without using more land while lowering emissions. So this becomes one of our biggest challenges now. It's like, uh, there's challenges all over the place, but we got to pick one and focus on it. And to help address this problem, livestock was not part of the conversation back then. Uh, people wanted it to happen, but people didn't have the means to make it happen. So to do this, we first had to digitize this information. And after years of digitizing it, we've had like you know 60 million animals through our system now. We've got this incredibly detailed database that now everyone's interested in it because... Now people are realising that, yes, we're going to need that to be able to improve sustainability. What an awesome and amazing project. And, you know, like it's all the things that you've done have been at this scale of, you know, um, creativity and, and a real-world impact that we see in, in the music that you've done as well as this, um, this tech um, development and software engineering and R&D that you've been involved in. Before I go, I want to ask you three quick questions. What's keeping you up at night? I guess at the moment, it is this coordination of s such a large research project for something so important. To get this working, what it means is we're going to have to demonstrate uh, how we can uh, show the benefits to be able to improve sustainability. And it's something that we have to sh be able to... Uh, any research prob problem means that the answer is not known before you start. So there's always that chance of anything can fail, right? 
So to be able to get everything in line, to be able to coordinate so many different groups together, this is my, my current thing. That's uh, uh, my worry. In a way, failure is okay if you're in a purely academic environment because that's knowledge as well that it failed. But when you're in a commercial environment, it's a bit more stressful, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, and also because it's such an important problem. Like, you know, we were doing a whole lot of, you know, the band like formed through activism circles. Uh, we were at all the different protests. When the band was in the early days, we were playing at environmental protests. We wrote environmental songs back in the early 2000s. This is something that's, you know, super close to our hearts as well, right? So to get this right and to be able to make a difference, that's what keeps, keeps me going. Who else should I talk to? I reckon Luke Dernley is a fascinating person to talk to. So Luke Dernley, like he was um, half of Subbase Snarl, uh, this, uh, this important electronic act from the 90s, uh, and they ran this weekly night called Frigid every Sunday. And this became our church, basically. We'd go there every Sunday, uh, and all the electronic producers would go there, and uh, there'd be like a regular Frigid crowd, and that's where we met a lot of the connections that became Elephant Tracks. And it's, it's just seeing how, how they help foster that community develop and everything that's grown out of that. We're always thankful for, you know, for that uh, frigid group there. But Luke has done some fascinating stuff throughout his life as well. He has a similar balance between music and technology as well. Love that. Last question, what gives you hope? I get hope from seeing that the young young people are always fighting to be relevant in in their life in because you can see about all the different problems you can see about venues closing down but when you're young you're you you have this fight to have fun so people still figure out ways how to have their warehouse parties or you know and that that gives that gives me hope in seeing that the young people are still going to be creative. They're still going to push and uh, and make things happen and do great things. Love that, love that tone. And and it's happening in Sydney. There's so much of that stuff, despite all of the you know uh, all the negatives around. Thank you so much for joining me today, Kenny. It has just been so excellent. Where is the best place someone is coming to this podcast called? They've never heard Elephant Tracks. They've never been aware of your work in tech with AgriWeb and so on. Where are you sending them? Where should they go to to find out more? Oh, gosh, that's pretty diverse that yeah, <laughs> covering yeah. that. Um, well, for music, let's start with um, uh, Spotify. Uh, so I guess you can start by looking up The Herd or looking up Elephant Tracks artists uh, and – yeah, start from there. Horror show, be wise. Hermitude. Yeah, so there's a rich history and uh, just seeing these acts evolve over time as well. Like the first time I met Hermitude, they were uh, Angus and Luke Dubbs was the support, uh, what well, was the band for Earth Boy and Angus was playing drums and he was 15 years old. And, and then later when Elephant Track signed him, then their first albums were like, you know, very underground and, you know, but they built up a following and it took like five albums to break them, uh, which you wouldn't see a major holding on to an act for five albums. But when they broke, they sure did break. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, that first EP that they put out on Elephant Tracks, I think it was a 12-inch, was just such a great record. And it's it's incredible to see them as a global band now, you know, yeah. like a, a big band that played a big audiences around the world. It's 160-plus records on the label so far, so there's plenty of stuff. And AgriWeb, how do people find out more about that? Yeah, you can go to AgriWeb, that's web with a double B, dot com. Uh, or to see the new research project, you can see foragecaster.com. Amazing. This was produced and hosted by me, Matt Levinson. If you haven't heard the previous episodes, I really recommend digging back in. Um, Sean Christie David, uh, who I spoke to last time, founder of Colombo Social, of Kabul Social, and this sort of growing food services empire that is just incredibly generous and also 
extremely tasty. Um, Megan Loder, who started FBI Radio and now works high up in the ABC, shaping up um, things like uh, Double J and a stack of other stuff. Jess Cook, who created 107 projects in Redfern and various other places across the city. All these people are amazing and it's been really inspiring to um, spend time with them. Thank you so much for joining me too today, Kenny. It's been an absolute joy. Thank you, Matt, for the invitation. I might have a story for you.